1: Hello and welcome to the Jewish Studies Channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Joshua Perrins to discuss his recent book, Leo Strauss and the Recovery of Medieval Political Philosophy, published by the University of Rochester Press in 2016, and part of the series that he edits, Rochester Studies in Medieval Political Thought. The book unpacks a number of complicated subjects that I think we'll get to in detail in the interview itself. It's a reading not only of Leo Strauss, one of the most influential political thinkers of the 20th century, but of medieval philosophy in general, using the figures of Al-Farabi and Maimonides as keys to discuss this. We'll unpack the inheritance of Greek political thought, as well as the context of medieval political philosophy more generally, exposing the tensions between philosophy and religion, or reason and revelation. I'm excited to have Professor Parents here with me today. Um, good morning. Good morning. So let's begin with... Um, a little bit of an introduction, I suppose. The book is at once a a cohesive argument that's made up of uh, these individual articles um, that center around the figures of Maimonides and Al-Farabi and the reading of uh, Leo Strauss. So before we begin with the book in earnest, um, let's begin with a little bit of background. Who were Al Farabi and Maimonides, and what is the context that you deal with? What is medieval political philosophy?
0: Right. So, Al Farabi was a 10th century Muslim philosopher born at the eastern reaches of of the Islamic world. He's widely recognized as the most important political philosopher in the Muslim tradition and recognized in some circles as probably the first serious philosopher in the Muslim tradition. So, Writing in the 10th century, he ended up having pretty significant influence, as it turns out, on Maimonides, who was writing in the uh, 12th century. So one of the main connections between al-Farabi and Maimonides is that after al-Farabi wrote, uh, a pretty strong series of, of objections against his philosophy arose calling it heretical. They came from a thinker called Al-Ghazali, uh, who lived in the 12th, 11th to 12th century. And thinkers in the Islamic world, contemporaneous to Maimonides, such as Averroes, attempted their response. And I, I view Maimonides to a great extent as an effort to respond to that very intense critique of philosophy in the Muslim world. So that as a kind of rough, very rough background for Maimonides and his connection to Al-Farabi.
1: What would you describe as the difference between political philosophy and general philosophy in this context?
0: So there are multiple senses of the term political philosophy, especially in the thought of Strauss. And uh, so to start, political philosophy means... Uh, simply a part of philosophy uh, that is the practical part. It's also taken by Strauss to refer to the surface teaching of philosophy, one that protects philosophy largely because of the kinds of challenges that Al-Farabi faced, that Socrates faced uh, in the ancient world, which is the obvious problem that philosophers face, which is to say they come into conflict with the opinion of their community they come into such conflict mainly because uh, they question the medium of opinion of a given community. So Al-Farabi did that for the Muslim world. Uh, Socrates did it for the Greeks. And in very important ways, Maimonides did the same thing, though he did it in a far more delicate and gentle way than Al-Farabi did, largely because he was concerned about these problems that in Been posed in the Muslim context with Al Ghazali. So political philosophy then is sometimes viewed as the political protection of philosophy, especially in in Strauss's thought. Uh, But then there's an additional sense of the term political philosophy, and this appears especially in uh, Strauss's middle or later thought which is the idea that political philosophy is actually quite comprehensive. It's not merely a part, but is in a way a reflection on the whole, but in particular, man's place in the whole, man's place in relation to the city and to the cosmos. So there are these very, very different meanings. And actually my book focuses more on the the later sense than on the earlier sense, that is to say, I don't focus as much on political philosophy merely as the practical part of philosophy, but instead this broader, more ambitious endeavor. And let me just try to put a little bit of a point on it, Um, especially in the medieval uh, Jewish and Islamic traditions, because they are both traditions of law there's a way in which the inquiry into practical things is bound up with an inquiry into theoretical things in such a way that you can never separate them. So political philosophy then ends up, for that very reason, being a much more comprehensive thing than it would be in the Christian tradition.
1: To continue this line of thinking, um, one of the juxtapositions you make in the book um, that's quite strong in framing your argument is the comparison between Islamic and Jewish philosophy on the one hand, and what you call the Christian scholastic paradigm on the other hand. Could you describe this opposition for us?
0: Sure. So following on what I was just saying, um, in the Jewish and Islamic traditions, precisely because they are traditions of law, the highest science or the highest inquiry in their traditions, uh, at least in the first instance, is jurisprudence. Talmud, um, or fiqh in in the Islamic tradition. So in these traditions, it's not theology that appears to be central. Uh, but in contrast, in the Christian tradition, it's of course well known that theology is the queen of the sciences, that in a way all of the other sciences are submissive to and subordinate to theology. By which we mean revealed theology and for that very reason in the christian tradition philosophy is effectively subordinate subordinate to revealed theology nothing comparable really exists in the in the jewish and islamic setting
1: when you describe medieval political philosophy um could you give us a sense of what the sort of material that made it up was what was there on the one hand there's the greek political philosophy and on the other hand is Uh, religious or theological thought, what was it that they were struggling with? What was their inheritance?
0: So uh, their inheritance was largely uh, from the Platonic philosophy, more than the Aristotelian philosophy. And this, by the way, goes back to what we were just talking about. Christians picked up uh, Aristotle in large part because Aristotle treats politics more independently from theoretical philosophy. Whereas in the Muslim and Jewish traditions, Plato treated uh, the theoretical and the practical very much of a piece. So there really is no separate inquiry in Plato's dialogues into metaphysics on the one hand and into politics on the other hand. It's true that the emphasis in some dialogues is more on the one and more on the other, but all of them have a very political frame That then was really the thing that medieval Muslim and Jewish political philosophers picked up on and said, well, uh, if we look to Plato and we see that he wrote a massive dialogue called The Laws, and in it, it begins with uh, an ascent to a meeting with a god, which is the story that has been told about where the laws came from, you can see that there is this... this very obvious similarity between the way Plato treated law and the divine and the way in which the Muslims and the Jews treated law and the divine. Obviously, it's a pagan setting, so not everything is the same, but the overall structure is really the same. And for that very reason, uh, thinkers like Al-Farabi, Maimonides looked back. uh, However, consciously or unconsciously more to Plato. It's interesting actually Al-Farabi, he looks very consciously back to Plato. Maimonides is a little le- less so. He pretty it's his interest in Plato is largely mediated by Al-Farabi. So, by and large we have then people who are looking at their revealed laws and they are making inquiries into questions such as who is the prophet? How does the prophet receive the revelation from uh from the divine.
1: So let's let's turn for a second to your title, um, Leo Strauss and the Recovery of Medieval Political Philosophy. Can you tell us a bit about Leo Strauss? Who was he, and what is the recovery that he made of medieval political philosophy?
0: So Leo Strauss uh, was born in eighteen ninety nine in Germany, uh, and died in the United States in 1973. So in between, he uh, studied in Germany at universities such as Hamburg and Freiburg. And there he met very important thinkers such as Husserl and Franz Rosenzweig. He eventually, in the 1920s, became friends with Gershom Scholem and uh, indirectly with Voltaire Benjamin uh so he spent then the first couple of decades of his life in Germany. As the political situation decayed, uh he eventually moved on uh to a year in France and then a couple of years in England, at which time so so along the way, of course, he had in his college years worked toward uh a PhD on uh a late German philosopher called Jacobi who was very, very interested in the pantheism debate. And he was very interested in general questions about the relate, the relation between reason and revelation. And so it was in those early days in Germany, in the university that he first went in this direction of an inquiry into reason and revelation and eventually pivoted toward the medieval, uh, Muslim and Jewish thinkers, but at the same time also turned toward early modern thought and the thought of Spinoza first, and then eventually Hobbes. So from there, he went on to the United States, the new school for social research in the 1930s, and eventually to the University of Chicago uh, from, let's see, uh, 1948 to 69. So
1: and the recovery that he made of, of medieval political philosophy?
0: Yes. So, starting from his interest in the problem in late modern thought about the relationship of reason and revelation, he came to the conclusion that the view that modern political thought and modern philosophy had refuted revelation was essentially false. And... Uh, That enabled him to see that modern philosophy in general had a kind of deficient understanding of revelation. And it was for that reason then he turned back to the medieval tradition because he saw in these medieval thinkers a much more serious uh, interest in revelation and in its claims to truth. Strauss
1: is somewhat famous for... His discovery or his use of esoteric writing and esoteric reading um, and part of your book one of the, the large sort of threads that, that runs throughout the book is using Strauss as a lens to to read medieval political philosophy um, as is and then in a sense an additional layer of your reading Strauss's work um, so could you unpack this a little bit for us what is Strauss's esotericism um, and how does it feature in your book?
0: Uh, as we turn to turn back to pre-modern esotericism, uh, instead of arguing uh, that society should be adjusted to philosophy or the philosopher, uh, they argue the other way around the philosopher should adjust to society so uh, in the pre-modern context then that means, Uh, that the philosopher cannot say all that he thinks all the time. He actually has to be somewhat secretive. And that in the end really is what esotericism is. It's not speaking frankly on every occasion, but giving other indications which the intelligent reader can put together to infer what one is arguing. And in the case of Strauss, uh, Strauss, Use this to a, very, to a great extent as a key to the understanding, especially of medieval, medieval uh, Jewish and Islamic political philosophy. In contrast, say to the to Christian thought, Christian thought can be characterized reasonably as Christian philosophy. Strauss makes the very strong claim that um, thinkers as uh, authoritative as Maimonides and Yehuda HaLevi um, argue that being a Jew and being a philosopher, these are mutually exclusive things. If that is true and one wants to argue as a philosopher, one has to be then extremely cagey or indirect in the way in which one makes arguments if one is arguing in the Jewish or Islamic setting. So let's continue on with the book itself.
1: Um, and before we tackled it, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and the process of writing the book? What was it like? How did how did it
0: unfold? Uh, how did you decide to write the book? So uh, I attended St. John's College in Annapolis, a great book school, and then went to the University of Chicago. Um, so I ended up studying medieval Jewish and Islamic philosophy, in part in a In ways that sort of echo Strauss, because Strauss, uh, just as he confronted late modern thought uh, and its attempts to displace religion, uh, I similarly experienced something like that in studying Heidegger in uh, college. And then as I went on to graduate school, uh, it was recommended to me that I take a look at Strauss as a kind of uh, antidote to Heidegger. Um, so that led me to this, uh, rather odd niche of medieval political philosophy. But as you can see, I'm trying to the argument that medieval political philosophy is not necessarily only the part, but refers then to the whole. Uh, so how then did I turn to the writing of this book in particular? So I, I already, uh, had several books, two books on Al-Farabi, um, one co-edited volume, and then one book on Maimonides and Spinoza. So all along, I have been studying Al-Farabi, Maimonides, Spinoza, along with Strauss. And in the last 20 years, um, Strauss has gone from being only a commentator to being treated as a thinker in his own right, especially in the United States. Uh, And for that reason, it became uh, acceptable to write and think about him as a serious thinker on his own, and since I have been working all this time on medieval political philosophy, I figured this was the right angle of entry, even though I am also interested in the whole body of Strauss's thought and his study of the whole sweep of Western political philosophy.
1: The book itself is interesting in the sense that at once you're operating on multiple layers. Um, there's Strauss's engagement with medieval philosophy and medieval philosophy's engagement with Greek philosophy um, and your own engagement in, in the contemporary setting um, with the discourse around Strauss. Um, and so let's, let's lead into the book itself. Uh, the first section of the book is entitled The Particular Platonism of Farabi and Maimonides. Um, what's the argument here and how does it set up
0: the rest of the book? Okay, so... Can I take a step back to the introduction just for a minute to give a more general frame? So, uh returning to the to the uh problem of the status of the philosopher. Uh this is what Strauss encapsulates in the phrase the theological political problem. So the theological-political problem, he derives this phrase, theological-political, obviously from Spinoza's theological-political treatise. As it's captured in that treatise, The theological-political problem is the problem of how uh, believers in different faiths can live together. Uh, so it's the conflict between religion and being a citizen. That as a problem is one version of the more general problem of the relationship between the philosopher and the city. So religion always has uh, makes these claims upon us about the order of the whole, in effect arguing, well, this is the proper understanding of the whole. And the challenge has always been, what if we disagree in our interpretation of the order of the whole? What does that then mean for politics? Uh, I realize that's a very large a large ball of wax, but in a nutshell, that's the theological political problem. But to state it again more straightforwardly and succinctly, it's the tension between the philosopher as individual and the city uh, and its views. Now that theological political problem, that's one of the main themes of the book and pro- probably the other uh, key theme is a claim that Strauss made in some of his writings in the 1950s, in which he argued that political philosophy, broadly understood, is what he co- is what he referred to as first philosophy. And for the philosophy buffs out there, that of course that reference to first philosophy uh, is a reference to metaphysics. So to argue that political philosophy is first philosophy is, in a way, to claim. That though in the history of the West, we usually have thought of metaphysics as the grounding and most fundamental inquiry, Strauss is actually trying to suggest that political philosophy, broadly understood, is actually this uh, more essential grounding inquiry. So that just those as the two big problems, the theological-political problem on the one hand, and wrapping one's mind around this problem. What in the world is meant by claiming political philosophy is first philosophy? Oh, so I was going to say, could you expand a
1: little bit on the implications of that, of what it means to have political philosophy
0: as first philosophy or metaphysics? So to return to the point I made about uh, medieval Islam and Judaism in general, It is the character of law not to separate out the theoretical from the practical in any very clear way. It's precisely because political philosophy sees as its challenge thinking through the relationship of the theoretical and the practical that political philosophy can then serve as first philosophy. Another way of putting it is that in the Christian tradition, metaphysics may well be the grounding inquiry, but in a setting in which law is the fundamental feature of life, political philosophy is effectively the grounding inquiry. So political philosophy then broadly understood, as I said before, ends up being an inquiry not just into political philosophy as a part, but instead an inquiry into the relation of the individual to city and cosmos.
1: To return to the theological political problem, um, and maybe one of the, you know, the second strong theme that that ties your your book together um, is this tension between religion and philosophy. Um, So I was wondering if you could expand on, on this second, second theme, Um, and how it features
0: in the works of Farabi and Maimonides. So the theme of reason and revelation, which is of course central for Maimonides, uh, for Maimonides, for Al-Farabi, but also for Leo Strauss. Um, Take, for example, Maimonides' guide. Uh, It makes inquiries into whether God exists, whether God is one, whether God is incorporeal, in addressing questions like that, Maimonides nearly always presents uh, a series of opposing accounts, possible accounts of how one would view God. For example, in Guide, part one, chapters 50 through 70, he really gives two fundamentally different portraits of God. There's the God of the so-called negative theology. Uh, of, in effect, God, as Udde Vauve, the Tetragrammaton. And then on the other hand, we get an account that's essentially Aristotle's account of God. Maimonides does not give a clear synthesis of these two views. Instead, he juxtaposes them and gives indications as to which of them might have a stronger or a weaker case. What's the basic opposition between them? The basic opposition boils down to an, the opposing view, not only of God, but it's much clearer in the case of the view of um, providence. The view of revelation with respect to providence is surely that God is concerned with, uh, concerned with, and knows every particular. The essential view of the philosophers can be encapsulated as God knows only the whole only in effect the species character of things and does not know any particulars. In effect, the view of a thinker like Aristotle, which Maimonides echoes, uh, is that God is concerned with things that are too important for him to be concerned with particulars. So Maimonides then sets up a very intense debate between these opposing views. That then ends up being what I would consider the The tension or opposition between reason and revelation. In the Christian tradition, these are assumed to be easily harmonizable. I don't see in Maimonides or in Al Farabi the same kind of effort to synthesize or harmonize these very opposing accounts of the divine.
1: The second half
0: of the book. Opens up with your essay that you entitled
1: or the section that's entitled, Strauss on Al Farabi and Maimonides uh, in the 30s through 50s. Um, and here you set up a, a periodization of, of Strauss's thought that's very interesting and, and engages in the contemporary discourse around Strauss, um, and builds on the previous section, which is about Strauss's departure from what you call the Christian paradigm, um, or the Christian scholastic paradigm, um, where you juxtapose Strauss against a number of other. Um, scholars of medieval philosophy um, who see the context of medieval political philosophy um, not as Islamic as opposed to Christian, but as, as a total one. Um, so I was wondering if you can now, let's lead into to Strauss's reading of these thinkers um, a little bit more explicitly. What's the periodization that you set up here and, and why is that unique? Um, and then a second, I guess a second part of this question is um, his work here, as opposed to other people's uh, maybe meta-history of uh, medieval political philosophy.
0: Okay, so by periodization, you're talking about the periodization of Strauss's thought. And uh, the, the basic argument that I'm making is that though he started to have many of the key insights as early as uh, philosophy and law which he published in 1935, uh, along with a series of other articles he published in the late 30s. Probably the the landmark article for which Strauss was maybe most famous in writing on Maimonides would be his literary character of The Guide for the Perplexed, um, which was eventually published Uh, As a part of persecution in the art of writing That was published in 52 But originally written In 1941 So What am I arguing about periodization I'm arguing that um, In the late 40s At a moment that uh, The German scholar Heinrich Meyer Has called Strauss's shipwreck In 1946 That he He um, understood that he had in a way to start all over again from the beginning. What I take that to refer to is the way in which in Strauss's early thought, he argued almost as if political philosophy were not only a part but merely the last part of philosophy and the real center and core of philosophy – was purely theoretical. The way that he put it in philosophy and law was that uh, the giving of revelation made it possible for the Jew to aristotelize. And that was what he presented in philosophy and law was what Maimonides was really doing. Now, what I argue then is that by the time he gets to the early 50s, he starts to give a different account of uh, both political philosophy and his understanding of Maimonides. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everything he wrote be- uh, before 1946 is irrelevant. On the contrary, many of the insights that he has there, they're starting to come together into to gel. But I think his uh, pro- the proper understanding of what political philosophy is wasn't really clear to him until the late 40s and the early 60s. So what is novel in the 50s? The great novelty appears in a very, in this very obscure uh, piece that he wrote called Maimonides' Statement on Political Science. It appears in What is Political Philosophy, uh, which was published in 1958. But this piece was written in 1953. In this very strange piece, what it is devoted to is Maimonides' uh, Treatise on the Art of Logic. Now, that Treatise on the Art of Logic, of all things, appears to argue that In Judaism, there is no need for political philosophy. Now, it's pretty obvious that for Strauss, that uh, for this to really be the case would be to uh, undermine not only everything that he was now thinking, but everything that he had been thinking about political philosophy. And the way that Strauss interprets this very strange material is that uh, the claim of law, the claim of revelation is that In effect, if God can uh, guide us about how we should live our lives, then we really don't need to reflect uh, using political philosophy on either the whole or on the right way of acting. Uh, Strauss makes a pretty strong argument that Maimonides cannot possibly mean that. Uh, It simply can't be reconciled with a work like The Guide of the Perplexed, The Guide shows again and again and again that all of those highest uh, theoretical arguments about God and providence um, and prophecy all end up being tied up in the question or the essential questions of political philosophy, how should we live? Uh, And Maimonides, far from suggesting all we need is the law, suggests that philosophy is an indispensable supplement to what the law can offer to us. It is really only through philosophy that we can come to uh, purify the law and reflect upon it intelligently, such that we have a, a the most reasonable interpretation of law we can have. After all, law always has to be interpreted. The last section of your book um, ends with a reading
1: of The Guide of the Perplexed. Um, could you give us a sense of, of what your reading is and uh, what makes it unique?
0: So roughly, um, to go back to esotericism and the question of surface and depth, uh, the argument that I, that I believe I see in Strauss, how to read Maimonides, is that those very high theoretical inquiries, um, which we usually call Jewish philosophy in the guide, uh, such as part one, chapters 50 through 70, um, those are what Strauss identifies even very early on in literary character as uh, what he calls enlightened kalam. So this term kalam, dialectical theology, is a term that Maimonides uses because Maimonides, of course, writes in Arabic, not only in Hebrew, right? He wrote the Mishnah Torah in Hebrew, but his other works in Arabic. So enlightened kalam, what is this enlightened dialectical theology? It is in effect this theological surface of the text of the guide. And what I try to argue then is that far from that theological surface being the depth, it is rather the surface, and the depth of the work is instead political philosophy. What appears above all in uh, the chapters in part two, usually referred to as the prophetology section, uh, part two of the guide chapters uh, 32 through 48, So those sections are concerned with prophecy and law, and the next part of the guide on Providence, um, part three, uh, chapters one through um, 31, 32, um, 34, actually, 34, sorry, Uh, one through 34, those deal with Providence and eventually law. Now what strauss tries to argue is that it is that middle section that is really the heart and the soul at the core of the guide rather than the more theological material that appears earlier the more theological material though apparently higher and more theoretical is in, is rather than the theoretical ground of the whole work instead a kind of apologetic an apologetic and defensive Judaism, but a defense of Judaism in such a way that it makes room for philosophy. And here we have a bit of a squaring of the circle. After all, I, I quoted Strauss earlier with that argument, um, according to Maimonides and Alevi, Jew and philosopher are mutually exclusive. Well, This is part and parcel of the esotericism of a work like The Guide, that it would have a theological surface that defends Judaism, but in such a way that the philosopher in Judaism uh, can engage in inquiries, at least privately. You you end the book with
1: a uh, a critique of Shlomo Penis' argument uh, in an article that he wrote um, entitled Limitations. Um, And I was wondering if you can tell you how this sort of fits into this reading that you make of the guide um, and why you chose to add it as the conclusion of the book
0: right so that uh article by Shlomo which appeared in 1979 ended up being pretty pretty decisive for the study of uh Afrabi, more importantly to maimonides um so how, how so and what did it argue? It argued, in effect, that Maimonides' uh, argument in the guide is very much like the argument of Kant. It, in effect, argues that man cannot know anything about the divine. That, of course, squares with uh, notions of negative theology. Um, so what penis then, in effect, argued was the theoretical is simply beyond us. The highest inquiries into the divine, these are beyond us. As Kant would argue, one cannot have theoretical understanding of these things. So instead, one is limited to uh, so-called political happiness. That, by the way, is an interpretation that many so-called Straussians make of Strauss. They, in effect, interpret Strauss as suggesting there is no there are no higher inquiries there are there are no theoretical inquiries to be had uh, the only things that we can know are about human happiness in effect so the argument that I try to make at the end of the book is that neither Strauss nor Maimonides maintains the view espoused by penis by the way penis of course was the translator uh, of the guide into English published in 1963 and uh, Strauss and penis worked closely together on that. Strauss writing a very, very long introduction to that English translation. So what I try to argue, broadly speaking then, is is simply that Pines, though he knew Strauss and though he thought he understood Strauss, I'm trying to argue he didn't, that he oversimplified his argument, and in doing so, he distorted uh, Maimonides. Now, don't get me wrong, there are most uh, interpreters of Maimonides have had difficulty of one kind or another with Petus' argument. Um, Even Petus, as far as I know, ended up revising his own argument later. Nevertheless, this very rough argument about the guide, um, no inquiry into anything above the sphere of the moon, in effect, right, into the divine, that's simply impossible. Um, That just doesn't seem to me to square well with either Strauss's interpretation of Maimonides or with Maimonides himself. To conclude,
1: um, what do you think Strauss can teach us today in 2017, um, in terms of political, uh, medieval political philosophy, um, and political philosophy more generally?
0: To some extent, my, uh, previous book, Maimonides and Spinoza, um, may in a way get a little bit closer to this. And I say this in part as an argument, um, since I'm being interviewed by an interview, an interviewer in Israel, um, I know that in Israel, it's become rather popular to assimilate Maimonides to Spinoza. Um, And I think if there's one thing crucial and essential that Strauss enables us to see, it's the very great importance of seeing clearly the radical difference between Pre modern thought, the thought of a Maimonides and the thought of Spinoza. Not so that we can dismiss Maimonides, on the contrary, the only way to really appreciate the value of Maimonides is to understand, I think, this, at least to start with this very crude point that I have made repeatedly that pre modern political philosophy made the argument that philosophers must adjust to society. As a result, the account they gave of politics was fundamentally different from ours. Theirs was a very uh, inegalitarian, highly hierarchical sort of account of political life. When, When it comes to a thinker like Spinoza and to modern political thought, of course, his thought is shot through with advocacy for egalitarianism and for religious toleration. It's uh, I can understand why people would want to recruit Maimonides as an ally in advocating for religious toleration and even democratic politics, but I don't think that one can really do that successfully. It seems to me that's probably the, the most obvious direct value that Strauss uh, offers in studying these thinkers for today.
1: I would like to thank Professor Perrins for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about his recent book, Leo Strauss and the Recovery of Medieval Political Philosophy, published by the University of Rochester Press and part of his series, Rochester Studies in Medieval Political Thought in 2016.